Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many of us are of the works of the law, are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. My mind often goes back to 1973 when some of you weren't born, but I was out of high school barely. That's the year I graduated. And there was a movement afoot where I was at where a lot of people were basically coming to Christ. And I remember hearing the gospel. What I remember in particular is the afternoon that I heard Billy Graham on television. My dad said that I should study those who are gifted communicators, gifted public speakers, because he said, you know, someday you may have a business where you're required to speak publicly. <laughs> so it's good to learn from those who can do it well, whether it's in a debate class or somebody who can make a presentation. It was in the height of the Jesus movement. I was in my brother's apartment. Nobody was there. I was all alone from a human perspective. But God was there. I was running away from Jesus freaks. That's what I called them. That's what a lot of us called them. My friends who were Christians and were trying to convert me. That's all they wanted to talk about. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wanted to get away from them, and I did. But Jesus himself was pursuing me. And he found me in a San Jose apartment watching Billy Graham drinking a Budweiser. This is not a commercial, don't worry. 
And I thought, I'm going to have a beer and watch Billy Graham. Interesting combination, to say the least. As he spoke, I felt really strange, and I knew it wasn't one beer. I knew that there was something else. In fact, I set it down. I just said, I've got to listen to this, because this was very different from the religion that I grew up with. What he was saying was making sense. And it was making so much sense that I was saying, I need to do whatever he's telling these people to come down from the grandstands and do. I need to do that. But, and I've told you this on many occasions, I had a television set that separated me from Billy Graham. And I was safe, I thought, just when you thought it was safe to turn on the television. And I'm thinking these thoughts in my head. I'm thinking, if I was in that stadium, I would follow these people who are making this commitment to Christ onto the field. But at least I'm watching by television. And I get up to turn it off, and Billy Graham turns right into the camera, looks directly at me with those blue eyes, says, if you're watching by television, right now you can know Christ as your Savior. And I was spooked. I turned it off. I went into my bedroom. And I had a talk with God. I began to understand that God himself was pursuing me. I gave my life to Christ. For the next week, I wanted to tell people that something happened to me, but I didn't know how to describe what happened to me. I was looking for words that would be well-chosen words that would describe the kind of experience that I just had, but I couldn't find adequate English words to describe it. I had not yet heard the term born again. At least it didn't register in my mind. Maybe I heard it, but I didn't retain it. So I'm trying to witness in such a feeble way, and I'm telling people, let me tell you what, what happened to me. It's like, um, well, it's different, and it's uh, weird and unusual, and it's not like this, but it's, and I couldn't think of the word. I get back down to where I was raised, back down south in Southern California, and a friend of mine comes up to me to witness to me, and he says, Skip, have you been born again? And I said, stop. Stop right there. What did you say? Have you been born again? Where did you get that? Where did I get what? That word, that, that phrase, born again. That's perfect. Now, by this time, he's looking at me like, you're weird. <laughs> I said, Dean, that's exactly what happened to me. I've been looking for a description of what God has done in my life last week, and born again is the perfect description. It's like I have a whole new life. He said, well, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And when I found out that was in the Bible, I thought, there's not a better description of the life of a Christian than being born all over again, having a brand new life. Well, that's fine, but after a period of time, that new birth to some people gets really old really quick. The excitement wears off. The joy dies down. They sort of stagnate, become stale, and unfortunately, they think, well, that's normal Christianity. I've sort of tapered off a little bit. 
I've learned to be cool and casual, not too excited and emotional like I once was. Well, there was a church in the New Testament called Ephesus, and Jesus wrote them a postcard and said, you have left your first love. Well, there's a church here at Galatia who have pretty much done the same thing. They've left the first love of an intimate relationship with Christ and have replaced it with rules and regulations, a system of rituals and laws, and they're feeling pretty good about it. They think this is mature Christianity. I'm not just born again. Now I'm born again, plus I'm keeping the laws of Moses. So I'm more spiritual. And Paul saw the danger in this leaving the intimate relationship with Christ and being married to the law of Moses that he was once delivered from as a Jewish rabbi. So Galatia was in danger of trading a relationship of loving worship for a religion of legal works. Once again, they were in danger of trading a relationship of loving worship for a religion of legal works. It is a danger. If it weren't, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have preserved this book for us. Now, there are only two religions in the world, you know. Only two. Oh, I know, you can buy a book of world religions, but you could divide them all into two. Number one is the religion of human achievement. The other one is the religion of divine accomplishment. Either you do something to get saved or God does something for you to save you. Now, some people combine these. That's what Galatians were doing. I'm saved by faith plus works. I'm saved by what Christ has done for me on the cross plus what I can now do for Christ in the flesh in the present tense. But there are only two religions. You either earn your way, you earn salvation, or it is a free gift. It is a religion of works, human effort, or divine accomplishment by grace. Now, I think it's safe to say, at least my experience is this. Most people are banking on the religion of human accomplishment. Most people that I meet, if you talk to them about heaven and hell and their life right now and being right before God, are banking on, well, I'm a pretty good person. I figure I'm going to get to heaven and they'll rattle off a list of their works. You see, they're willing to risk eternity on their belief that they can be good enough to get to heaven. Truth is, Paul, Mr. Works, the guy who said, I've kept all the laws in my own conscience. I kept all the laws of the Old Testament to the best that I could. And he said, all of that was rubbish. So we can start out pure, intimate, in love with Christ, but we can end up somehow stenosed. The life can be cut out. The vibrancy can be gone. And laws can do that. I found a list of laws that I wanted to share with you tonight that are church laws. These are actual laws written in the books of communities in our nation. But just to show you how outdated certain laws can be, especially in church, here's some of the laws in America still I hear on the books. 
Young girls are not allowed to walk the tightrope in Wheeler, Mississippi, unless it's in a church. Now that's bizarre. Here's another one. In Blackwater, Kentucky, tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster while she's in church services carries a penalty of $10 fine and one day in jail. Who brings feather dusters to church and tickles women under their chins? I guess at one time this was a real issue. Here's another one. No one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church in this name I can't pronounce, this town in Oregon. In Honey Creek, Ohio, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except a policeman. There's protection. No citizen in Lee Creek, Arkansas is allowed to attend church in any red-colored garment. Bringing a yo-yo to church, this doesn't refer to your husband or this refers to a, the toy. Bringing a yo-yo to church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is prohibited in Studley, Virginia. And finally, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church at any time in Slaughter, Louisiana. Well, with a name like Slaughter, why would you want to race your turtle anyway, I suppose? Well, those are laws in our country that are, are more recent in history, but they're outdated. The law at the time of the New Testament, Book of Galatian being written, was the laws of Moses, including circumcision, including keeping kosher dietary regulations, i.e. being under the covenant of Israel in an Old Testament fashion, some thought was necessary to get to heaven. If you want to be a saved person, you must first be a Jewish person going through our rituals and regulations, and then you'll be right with God. So Galatians was written. Now we're in chapter 3. We're just going to take a few verses tonight. But let me just remind you of the division of this book. Chapters 1 and 2 is personal. Chapters 2 and 3 is doctrinal. And chapters, uh, no, chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 is doctrinal. Chapters 5 and 6 is practical. So, chapter 1 and 2, and we already covered it, Paul speaks of himself. He's autobiographical. Here's my experience. This is how I've grown in Christ. Here is the proof of my authority as an apostle with the church at Jerusalem and in the Gentile world. Now chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. And he will answer the doctrinal question, what makes a person saved? How is a person right before God? And he has one answer. It's by faith. It's by faith. And he will argue in six different ways. We'll only cover one or two tonight. First of all, personally, from your own personal experience, examine your own personal conversion. Number two, scripturally, what does the Bible have to say, especially the law? Number three, logically, think in your mind how this works. Number four, historically. Number five, sentimentally. And number six, allegorically. You don't have to remember that. We won't have a test before the service is out tonight. But what we want to look at is being saved by faith from personal experience as well as from what the scripture has to say. 
Now, we've already read our verses, but you can tell something, I think. You can tell that Paul is writing strongly. In fact, I don't think he has written uh, a stronger letter than he's writing here in Galatians. He's like he has his punching gloves on. You can just tell by his lingo. He's getting firm with the Galatian church. He needs to. He's fighting for truth. It's the truth of salvation that is at stake here. So he says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? First of all, he's telling them in verses 1 through 5, go back to your personal salvation. Go back to your personal salvation. I don't know how you were all saved. You all have a different story. And I love to hear people's testimonies. By the way, if you don't have a testimony, you're suspect. If, if somebody can come up to you and say, well, how'd you get saved? Uh, well, huh? huh? What do you mean? Or, well, I've always been saved all my life. You know, if you can't give some kind of a concise testimony how your life was one way and then it was changed, if you don't have a testimony, you have a real question mark in your life. You're suspect. When I came to Christ, there were no bright lights. There was no voice from heaven. There was no ha oh, happening in the background. It was just very... Matter of fact, I was in my bedroom, I was thinking about this, what I had seen on television, and I had a talk with God. I didn't feel anything dramatic. I felt perhaps an alleviation of a burden of guilt because I knew I had confessed my sin before God and took him at his word. But now that's not everybody's case. Everybody's testimony is a bit different. I've met people who have heard voices and have seen visions. I know a lady who still walks with the Lord who said Jesus Christ woke her up in the middle of the night and she said she saw a vision of Christ and she got on her knees and wept. She knew that she wasn't right with God and she prayed for Jesus to come into her life and to forgive her of her sins. And it's like, you know what? She said, I was dense, I was stubborn, I wouldn't listen to anyone, but that got my attention. And she gave her life to Christ. Now. He's telling them to go back. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, I want to read this to you in a very creative translation called the J.B. Phillips translation. He translates it this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> well, he said dear. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic or spiritually dull. Now, I want to address this because someone would no doubt say, how could Paul call them foolish? Didn't Jesus warn us that if we call our brother a fool that we're in danger of hellfire? Yes, he did. And no, that's not what Paul is doing here. What Jesus was warning against was name-calling, being vitriolic against someone reducing them to an empty-headed, godless person making that kind of judgment. Whereas Paul is calling this church spiritually dull. The word foolish means to 
not be thinking or engaging your mind. Hey, Galatians, aren't you thinking? And he says, who has bewitched you? Yeah, there was a sitcom some years ago on television called Bewitched, where this gal wiggled her little nose, I can't do it, and, and cast a spell on people. It was fictitious, of course. But the word that Paul uses means who has cast a spell on you, or who has fascinated you. You know, preachers can sometimes be very persuasive. They can be highly emotional and stir the crowd with their speech and wow an audience, fascinate an audience, almost be spellbinding. They say Adolf Hitler had the ability to just cast a spell on thousands of people at one time by his speech. And no doubt Paul is referring to this group of legalistic Judaizers who by their persuasive speech cast a spell of false teaching over the congregation. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Christ was clearly portrayed among you as being crucified? Go back to your salvation, says Paul. Go back to what you have heard. When I was there with you in Galatia, the picture that I painted for you with my words, I portrayed Christ as crucified. In other words, the center of my message wasn't what man can do for God, but what God has done for man in the crucifixion of Christ, and by his crucifixion, the substitutionary death of Christ, which alone can save us. So, in effect, he's saying, go back to the message that I gave you, which was Christ as a crucified substitute. Not the gospel of kept sacraments. That's what they believed in. I'm saved because I've kept the sacraments. The sacrament of circumcision. The sacrament of kosher food. The sacrament of keeping the Sabbath. I've kept all of these sacramental, sacerdotal things. Therefore, I'm right with God. I commend you. We had a question about church history. You would um, be benefited if you would read a short history of the life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a devout young man, became a monk at a young age, was quite a scholar, joined the Augustinian monastery, earned a doctorate in theology, was very devout. Let me tell you how devout he was. In between his rigorous studies, which was day and night, he would flog himself with a whip, beating himself blue, black, bloody, bruised. Why? Because any impure thought that his mind might entertain, he wanted to distract himself from off the impure thought by flogging. By the way, that was very common among medieval Christianity, unfortunately. In fact, many monks dealing with the problem of lust would throw themselves into thorn bushes so that their thoughts wouldn't be on the lust of the flesh, but would be on their pain. Well, this was very successful, up to a point. But, of course, you'd always give yourself away. Because you get back to the monastery, you got cuts all over, and all the other guys know what you've been thinking. Well, this was the practice of Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther was so troubled about his sin and about going to heaven that he wanted to do anything he could to be right with God. He would earn his way to heaven. And so he would attend confession. He would go to the abbot or the priest for confession several times a day. In fact, the guy that he would go to said this to him, Martin, either go out and commit a sin worth confessing or stop coming here so often. Martin Luther was so devout that he took a long pilgrimage by foot to Rome, crossing over the Alps, became deathly ill. When he recovered and made it in 1509 into the city of Rome, he went to the church of St. John Lateran. And some of you may know what that is. You've seen it perhaps in Rome as I have. It's a church that purports to have the actual steps to the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. And it is the custom, it has been and it still is, to crawl up the steps on your knees. And almost everybody who makes this pilgrimage climbing up the steps on their knees, their knees are bloodied by the end of the journey. They think that this is an act of spirituality and piety. I'm showing myself devout before God. And as he's climbing up the steps, bloodied after a disease that almost killed him, he said, the Spirit of God reminded me of the text of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. He got up from the steps. He went back to his monastery in Germany. He started studying that through, and he realized, I can be right with God by faith, not by doing this stuff. It revolutionized his whole life, revolutionized Europe, and he wrote 95 little gripes that he had against the doctrines, the canons of the church on a door in Wittenberg, Germany, and began the Great Revolution. Or the Reformation, as it's called, but it was none less than a revolution. The just shall live by faith. Oh, foolish Galatians. And Martin Luther could say to himself, Oh, foolish Martin. Who has bewitched you? And he realized that he was saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Then verse 2, this I only want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? Faith. This is a rhetorical question. Okay, Galatians, think back to when I was there with you the first time I came to Galatians. You heard the message of the cross that I clearly portrayed Christ crucified. And subsequent to hearing, you believed it. And when you believed it, the Spirit came inside of you, as He does all believers. It's the evidence of salvation. It's the seal of redemption. It's the down payment. The Holy Spirit lives within a believer. Now, I, I want to pose something to you here. It could be that Paul is referring to being filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit and baptized into the body of Christ. This is typically how commentators treat the passage. And some taters are more common than others in this. But... The, the, the point that they're making is that every believer who receives Christ is given the Holy Spirit, which is true, and we're, we're a part of the body of Christ. But Galatians wouldn't know that unless somebody told them that, like Paul. So it could be that he is referring to some spiritual manifestation of the Holy Spirit that happened the moment they believed. This is not out of the pale of Scripture. This happened, in fact, the first time Gentiles heard the gospel. Remember Cornelius, Acts chapter 10? 
Peter, I told you the story last week. Peter goes, preaches the gospel. As Peter's talking to this Gentile household in Caesarea, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon those who were hearing the message. And the Jewish believers looked at each other and said, Can you believe it? They're receiving the Holy Spirit and they're not even Jews. They're Gentiles. How did they know that? It says they heard them all speaking in tongues and magnifying God. And they concurred that God has touched them because what happened to us in Jerusalem on Pentecost has happened to these Gentile believers in Caesarea. It could be that that is what Paul is referring to happened to the Galatian church. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What a great question. I want you to ask yourself that tonight, as I ask myself that. You began simply in the Spirit, by believing, by an act of faith, Jesus, I trust you, save me. So, if you started out not by being circumcised, not by keeping the law of Moses, not by doing anything but trusting in Christ. Why are you Galatians going back and practicing this form of legalism that never saved you to begin with? Are you not thinking here? Or as J.B. Phillips says here, you dear idiots of Galatia. How did you get so idiotic? This never saved you. Why would you go back into it for maturity? Why should we ask ourselves that question? Well, let me tell you. I have seen, more often than I'd like to, a pattern that happens to many Christians. They start out simple, they get complicated. They start out intimate and in love, and they grow sour over time. Somebody tells them something, and they go, Oh, now I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah, you, you need to do that. Oh, I, nobody told me that. This is new news to me. So now they've found some new truth or half-truth or overemphasis of a truth, and they embrace it. Then they go around telling everybody else, you need to do this. You need, well, did you? No, but that doesn't matter. I am now. So you need to believe exactly like I believe. They start out simple. They become complex. For example, I had some dear friends who were turned on to Messianic Judaism. And it's a wonderful thing. We realize, hey, as a Christian, I'm related to the Jewish people. Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles and, and Sabbath. And what beautiful biblical rituals these are. And they are to learn about them, to celebrate the Passover. Some of us like to do it every year. But I've also seen them gravitate to the law, to where they're now under the law. You have to do this. You have to realize the link you have with the Jewish nation. And I've had one dear friend tell me, you can't be saved unless you practice the laws of Moses. He was a Jewish believer who now gravitated back into Judaism. I've seen this happen with Calvinism. People come to Christ by simple evangelism. They're called to faith in Christ. They believe in Him. And then somebody later on tells them, well, you can't be saved by doing that. Only the elect are chosen. Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world, but just for a select few. You have to be predestined. They take certain truths of the Scripture and form a hyper camp of Calvinism 
that makes them dead and dry and useless when it comes to evangelism. They've begun in the spirit, but now they're trying to be perfected in the flesh. I've seen it happen with sacerdotalism. You go, what is that, a disease? No, that is simply the ideology or the philosophy that I keep rituals. And some people will come to Christ in simplicity, by faith, trusting Christ. It's just easy, it's simple, no complications. But then they gravitate toward the higher practices of the church that they feel like they, they're comfortable with. Nothing wrong with being comfortable with the robes and the stained glass and the rituals but they start trusting in them. Start simply, get more complex. So what a danger then to be warned of. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered, verse 4, so many things for nothing? If indeed it was for nothing? You know what he means by that? Well, the Galatians received Paul's message of Christ being crucified as the substitute for our sins. It was a simple message. It was a simple act of faith, and because they did that, some of these hyper-legalistic Jewish, these Judaizers, persecuted them. Now, for you to go back under the law that they're preaching is to say that you've been right all along. I've been wrong. I've been wrong to simply trust in Christ by faith. So he says, boy, you guys suffered a lot, Paul is saying, when you came to Christ simply by faith, and now you're going under those who persecuted you for that. It was all for nothing. Verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So, let me sum it up. Galatians, go back to your salvation. Remember what you heard, the gospel that I preached, Christ crucified. Now, remember what you have received. You received the Holy Spirit. And then here in verse 5, remember what you have seen. What have they seen? Miracles. Paul had the gift of miracles. He worked them among them. As an apostle, he had the gift of miracles. Now, it could be that when he speaks here of he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, he could be referring to the miracle of salvation itself. I'm trying to cover all the bases here. He could just simply mean, look how you have changed. What a miracle. That Jesus Christ invaded a town like Galatia, a pagan, rotten town like Galatia, and changed you in the midst of it. And listen, that is a miracle. That's just the greatest miracle. Like he saved us. He changed us. And by the way, if you're not different, if you're not changed, you know, you're saved apart from works, by faith. But when you come to Christ, if it's by authentic, true, saving faith, You'll be changed. Faith without works is dead. That's the balance of that truth. Or he could refer to miracles that happened in the church. I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles. And I don't, by the way, believe the miracles happened way back 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And then God just decided, turn off the switch. Miracle switch, off now. On then, off now. Don't do them anymore. I don't believe that. I believe that they were used maybe in a primary way back then for obvious reasons, as they are in parts of the world today where the gospel goes for the first time. But I've seen too many real miracles to deny them. 
I've had a miracle. A couple of them happened to me, legitimate ones, that I had medically documented. I had an acromioclavicular separation. It was a skateboarding accident. And here I build a skate park. What am I thinking? <laughs> it was before skate parks. It was before good insurance policies. It was in the swimming pools of Southern California. And I fell down, hit my shoulder, tore the ligament, and separated the AC joint, the acromion and the clavicle where they come together. It was separated. Great pain. Great cries of anguish. And I had a great wrapping around my body to keep my arm still. Very simply, by faith, I, I, I didn't know anything. But a good friend of mine who was a drummer in my band, but said, you know, Skip, God can do miracles. Yeah, okay, cool, whatever. I'm open, man. I was in his apartment. And we were just talking. He goes, hey, can we just pray for you? Oh, yeah, Okay. And now he didn't lay hands on me and go, yay, hallelujah. It was just a very simple. <laughs> it wasn't like on television where you throw, here comes the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it was just very simple. He just said, Lord, if it's your will, would you just heal Skip now? In Jesus' name, amen. I said, thanks, Jack, and walked away. And as I walked away, I felt different. I couldn't move it up to that point. It was too much pain. I had motion. I had full motion, and there was no pain. But then I said, you know, I had this x-ray yesterday. I'm not doubting God. I just want to get this documented so that I can tell people it was a legitimate thing that happened. I want to see if the joint is closed up. So I had it x-rayed. And I can say, look at that. That's a miracle. I had a friend of mine named Tony who had a radial nerve injury. He could not move his hand. It was pinched, his, all of his fingers, into a sieve-like configuration. And he came into my house after this injury. It had been x-rayed. He had a damaged radial nerve. I was studying medicine at the time. I knew what that was like. I knew that unless God touches that, even the surgeon said, I don't think I can do much for you. I'll try. Tony was backslidden. He wasn't even walking with God. He was in my house that night as we were falling asleep, and I had shared with him the gospel, and he was praying and wanted to get right with God. As we were just falling asleep, I didn't even pray out loud. I just, in my breath as I'm falling asleep, said, Lord, it would be really wonderful if you just touch and heal Tony. You don't have to, but what a token of love this would be to him. Here's this backslidden character you could touch him and you could heal him, and boy, what, what, what that would do to strengthen his faith. And I'm just thinking that way and praying. And I fell asleep. And I was awakened seconds later. My eyes shot open. Bing! Lights went on. I was awakened because Tony's yelling at the top of his lungs, Skip! 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 And he's moving his arm. Full motion. He started weeping. Got on his knees. I started weeping. I had never seen anything that dramatic. So, the Galatians who simply believed the gospel message and saw either the miracles of Paul or miracles among themselves in the congregation or the miracle of salvation. Paul is saying, do you remember that? Did that come because you were circumcised and kept kosher and went to the Sabbath and synagogue or because you believed 
in the one who did all the work on the cross, Jesus Christ? And of course, the answer is a rhetorical Christ. So we'll cover the second point next week, but tonight, let's sum up verses 1 through 5. Look back on your personal salvation. And do that tonight as, as we close in prayer. Go back to the time when you personally talk to God about your eternal life and your eternal stand before God. Think back to that time. Go back to the message that you first heard. You had lots of questions probably when you first heard the gospel. They weren't all answered. But you had enough information that Jesus Christ came and was crucified for you, taking all of your sins upon him, God imputing all of his righteousness to you. And you simply said, yes, Lord, I receive it. And you were changed by that. You weren't circumcised. Do you ever see us at this church say, Saturday we're going to have a circumcision down at Los Altos Pool. Listen, I don't think we'd have a lot of people show up, do you? <laughs> the Judaizers made the good news bad news. When you hear that, that's not a gospel. Oh, I'm glad you received Christ, but Saturday we wanted to meet you down here at the corner of Galatia and Maine for a circumcision. People didn't go, great, they went, yikes. And we're going to teach you how to keep kosher and keep the Sabbath and keep all the high holidays. No, they had begun in the Spirit. And if you've begun in the Spirit, continue in the Spirit. Don't try to be perfected in the flesh. So, that's Paul's first argument. Your own personal salvation. And next week we'll get into all these quotes of Scripture that he gets. What his second proof is, is look back to the prophetic Scriptures. And, you know, Paul is brilliant. Who's he dealing with? He's dealing with people who trust the law. So he will quote six times from the law to prove that you're saved by faith, not by the law.